everyone and welcome to another episode of the Through the Gears podcast. I am your host Anthony Bruno and I do want to apologize before we get into things that there was no episode last week and it's been a while since the last episode was put out. was not feeling so well and it was very difficult for me to put things together and record. But that being said, I'm back now and let's get into things. And we're going to start down under with Australian V8 supercars at Tasmania. Their Super Sprint weekend at Tasmania was happening over the past weekend. And for those that don't know, it is a three-way race weekend. Not the longest of races each one. And all of these count two points for the championship. Now, it was a pretty eventful weekend in a chilly Tasmania. Um, we'll start in race one, where it was a very entertaining and strategy-filled race. Not too, not too many incidents, but there were two kind of big ones that have may have some repercussions for the championship down the line. Um, first one, not so much as coming on lap one, James Courtney was sent off coming out of turn six or heading into turn six and was suffered some steering damage, taken out of the race. And in the turn four hairpin on lap three. Cam Waters ran Brody Kostecki wide. He suffered some steering damage as well. And behind that, you had Brock Feeney and Chaz Mostert collecting each other, putting each other out of contention for any uh, good finishes and good points. Then you had Will Brown of Coca-Cola Racing going on to take the win. It was a rather dominant fashion. Was able to maintain the lead after the pit stops or get it back. Andre Heimgardner had a good... Had a good run of form in race one, finishing second. And Shane Van Gisbergen passed Cam Waters on the final lap for the final podium position. Now, race two was early dominance for Coca-Cola Racing as Brody Kostecki and Will Brown kind of fought for the lead a little bit early on. And lap one had some more drama again as Shane Van Gisbergen, same place roughly to where James Courtney was hit off. Um, knocked off the racetrack, slammed hard into the wall, suffered steering damage, and kind of made things a little difficult for the Red Bull Ampol team. Uh, the Red Bull Ampol team, sorry, um, as they had a lot of repairs to do on that steering arm and suspension section heading into race three. Well, and while SVG was in the garage, his teammate Brock Feeney was out pulling a blinder as. It was a masterclass from both him and Red Bull Ampol as they ran Feeney longer and he was able to maintain out in front of Brody Kostecki and Will Brown and was able to pick up the victory with a comfortable margin in hand. He really drove the wheels off of it in both the first, the end of the first stint and the beginning of the second where he was on the colder tires, definitely made up a lot of time in both instances and was able to keep himself out in front of both Kostecki and Brown. And now race race three was more Coca-Cola racing dominance as Brown and Kostecki locked out the front roll. It's a little bit less chaotic than the other two races. Some incidences here and there around the hairpin on cold tires, but... Nothing too crazy. And Will Brown was able to take his second win of the weekend. Feeney comes second. Kostecki was able to hold off 
uh, Van Gisbergen in third. And basically, it means that driver standings-wise, you have a lead. I believe it's for um, Brody Kostecki holding the lead with his teammate Brown behind him. You have the lights of Mostert, Waters, and Van Gisbergen um, giving chase as well. But the Constructors is basically consistency from Coca-Cola Racing. I believe 276-point lead for them so far through 11 races. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how the rest of the season plays out for them. And if other Fords outside of Waters and Monster can really kind of strut their stuff a little bit because it has been early dominance from Chevrolet with these new Gen 3 cars, whether it's races, race wins from Van Gisbergen or Brody Kostecki or Will Brown or Brock Feeney. It has been very kind of one-sided in the Chevrolet versus Ford matchup so far in supercars. So we'll see if Ford can kind of make a comeback, especially through the likes of championship contenders, Monster and Waters. Now we cross the pond to Indianapolis, Indiana, where it was qualifying weekend for the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500. And this was an entertaining qualifying session to say the least. There was a record of 84 qualifying attempts on the Saturday. And it saw some very heartwarming qualifications for the race coming on the 28th. All one-time entries basically qualified in. You had the likes of... Stephen Wilson and Catherine Legg get in with Legg setting the fastest time by a female in um, indie qualification history. And you had the likes of Augustin Canapino and Callum Eilat who had been struggling with kind of speed and setup with their Yonkos Hollinger cars on practice the weekend before and throughout the week. But they were able to salvage and be able to find some speed in order to get them through. And that meant bump day, the Sunday, would be very interesting. As there would be one full-time IndyCar driver not racing in the Indy 500. Christian Lungard, Stingray Rob. Graham Rahal and Jack Harvey, all four of them battling for the final three spots in the final row of the grid for the 500. Now it was kind of back and forth, all of them kind of struggled to find speed, but you had Stingray Rob and Christian Lungard kind of comfortably settling themselves in, and then it was down to Graham Rahal versus Jack Harvey. And Jack Harvey qualified into the 500 by seven thousandths of a mile per hour on four lap pace. Now, for those that don't know, the way qualifying is done for the 500, it is your average speed over four laps. 
and Harvey's four a four lap average speed was seven thousandths of a mile per hour faster than that of Graham Ray Hall. And so Ray Hall was out of the five hundred. Or so you think. We'll get to that we'll we'll get to that later. Now we go on to the top twelve and fast six where it saw the likes of Santino Ferrucci showing amazing pace. It had Alex Pelot, Felix Rosenquist trading times, Renus Fike getting up in there. And we got down to the fast six, and it was Alex Pelot that snatched the pole position for the 107th running of the Indy 500. His four-lap average of 234.217 miles per hour is the fastest pole speed ever run in Indy 500 history. And it was not a big margin. And there was only about one-tenth of a mile per hour separating first, second, and third. The whole front row was separated by about a tenth of a mile per hour. And that front row was Polo, VK, Rosenquist. So you will have a front row of a Spaniard, a Dutch, a Dutchman, and a Swede lining up to take the green flag on Sunday for the Indianapolis 500. Now, when I said we'll get back to Ray Hall, on Monday, following qualification, there was practice, and there was a scary crash that involved Chris, uh, Catherine Legg and Stefan Wilson, with the latter suffering injuries and having been taken to hospital. It was then announced he had suffered from a fractured vertebra and would not be taking part in the Indy 500. Now, Dre and Rainbow Racing with Kusik Motorsports had to find a driver to put in their car for the race. And the way things worked out, and with Honda's blessing, funnily enough, Graham Rahal will be subbing in for Stefan Wilson and take his spot on the grid in the Indianapolis 500. Wilson qualified 25th, and so with the change in drivers, I do believe that that car will drop to the rear of the field. But Greyhall will be in the Indy 500. It'll be very interesting to see how things kind of shake out in practice moving on from here, because... Subsequent practices after qualifying has shown great speed from Penske with Will Power topping the timesheets. But it's going to be very interesting to see how not only um, practice, but carb day shakes out and who has the speed moving into the 500 on Sunday. Now lastly, but certainly not least, was NASCAR All-Star Weekend. And this weekend which was kind of poetic considering it is NASCAR's 75th anniversary, saw the return of a track that had been off the calendar for 17 years, I believe it is. 
No, actually 27 years. Excuse me. North Wilkesboro returned to the NASCAR Cup Series schedule for the first time since 1996. And as someone that has never seen a race on North Wilkesboro live, you would say, or as it is being run on television, it felt not really nostalgic in a way, but it felt very kind of familiar. And it was nice to see NASCAR returning to a track that has it laid its claim for on for over 40 years and was a track that kind of helped make NASCAR into what it is today. Now, this track was not one for the faint of heart. It was very slippery, low groove, grove circuit, um, low groove uh, surface that uh, ate up tires. And there was really only one groove, which was along the bottom. And if you got shuffled out of that, you were going to the back of the field. And we saw that a lot in the truck race that was run, in which we had two Cup Series regulars pushing towards the front in Kyle Larson and Bubba Wallace with Larson coming out the victor and Wallace finishing in fifth. And now I bring up these two names for a reason, and you'll see why when we get to the All-Star race itself. But the Truck Series showed that North Wilkesboro can 100% bring it in terms of entertainment and racing quality in modern NASCAR. And while this was... This All-Star Weekend was more of a a test run for the future of the racetrack. I think that North Wilkesboro should make a permanent stop back on the calendar. And whether it be the All-Star Race or whether you would put it as as a run at Charlotte where you have the Coke 600 one weekend, followed by a race at North Wilkesboro. I don't know, but I do think that North Wilkesboro deserves a spot back on the calendar. And if they're able to fix up the short track package for the Cup Series, I think it'll be one of the best races on the calendar every single year. Now we move to the All-Star festivities so the All-Star Open had some action, let's just say. Now, early on, there was some action with passes being made, and Ty Gribbs got off to a great start towards the beginning. But after losing some uh, positions on the road and falling back throughout the field, trying to get back up through the field, there was a little incident that he caused, that one that collected the likes of... Michael McDowell, and I think Chandler Smith was involved in it as well. And you could hear the frustration in Michael McDowell's voice when they went to the radio. And McDowell happened to get his payback later on after Gibbs took the lead and kind of ran away. Um, McDowell, kind of staying on track with a hobbled car, was able to hold up Gibbs, allowing Josh Berry to get past him. But it didn't really damage Gibbs' race too much as both Barry and Gibbs were able to get the two transfer spots from the open race into the all-star race. 
and Noah Gregson was then moved forward on the fan vote and which was this was interesting because during the open Gregson's car was damaged and they had to kind of rush and repair it and because it was the all-star race and because of the festivities and everything it seems like there was a little bit more leniency from NASCAR allowing for the team to do a little bit more in order for it to become a more competitive car and they were able to get it back out there in time for the main all-star race now this race being NASCAR's return to an old-fashioned track Kyle Larson decided to give us an old-fashioned ass whooping and this race was not close at all. Kyle Larson was in a different plane of existence from the rest of the cars in this field. He was flying. And even, and even though he got a speeding penalty at one point, he got through the field so quickly it didn't even matter. And he led 145 laps and if it wasn't for that speeding penalty he probably would have led more but there was points in an all-star race which only had about 20 something competitors he had lapped up to 12th place in a 200 lap race this guy could have if this was a full points paying NASCAR race with all 36 odd cars this guy probably could have lapped up to probably top 5 if it was a proper standing race with probably about 300, 400, 500 laps. He blew the doors off of anybody. Everybody. And the only guy that had any semblance of pace that barring, with a miracle could have matched his was Bubba Wallace. And there's a reason I mentioned them both with the truck race. Because the two guys that ran the truck race seemingly... While it took Bubba's car a lot longer to fire. They seemingly had more pace than everybody else. And it wasn't close. Larson was just strong everywhere and out of the gate. And you could see it from his onboard. He was running a line in turns 3 and 4. Where he would kind of dip these left front tire out onto the concrete. Before exiting onto the front straight. And the amount of speed he was generating out of four doing that was absurd. Just absolutely absurd. It was ridiculous. But between Larson's pace and then on the long runs, Bubba's car came alive. And while he had nothing for Larson, he was still faster than everybody else in the field. It seemed like those were the only two guys that could really make a pass in this race. And lo and behold... Long runs, long runs, even though there was some of some late cautions and stuff. They just walked away, the two of them. And Larson was just, I can't even put it much else into words other than it was just a butt kicking. I'm not going to go too deep into the finishing order of this one, but there are some notable things of a double top five for 2311, which is good considering they have one of their strongest style of tracks coming up in Charlotte with the Coca-Cola 600, a top 10 for Eric Jones, and a top 10 for Ty Gibbs. 
Speaking of the Coca-Cola 600, it is coming this coming weekend and is what is known as the greatest day in motorsports with the Monaco Grand Prix, Indianapolis 500, and Coca-Cola 600 all falling on the same day. And for the Coke 600, we'll have the return of one Alex Bowman, who's returning from a broken vertebrae injury that he suffered in a sprint car crash. Now, the 600, while it seems like a good race to return, it is also going to be a race where there's going to be a lot of pit stops, and I think the rough point for... Bowman, when he's in the car, is when the car drops off the jacks. And we'll probably see close to, if not, about a dozen pit stops in the Coke 600. So, I wonder how he's going to feel. I think, I would not be surprised if Hendrick Motorsports had Josh Berry on standby, just in case. But... Let's hope it goes well for Alex Bowman on his return to the 48. Now that is it for this episode of the Through the Gears podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Again, I do apologize for the delay between episodes. Uh, Hopefully we'll get back on a more consistent schedule moving forward. But thank you guys so much for tuning in and I'll catch you guys next time.